This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. This is the Prophetic Politics Podcast. I'm Nick Rodriguez. I'm Fadidi Anyapuile. And I'm Ben Brophy. And all right, so today is our uh, season finale for season three. And we thought, uh, as if you were watching the Twitter um, about a week ago, you would have seen us ask, um, to tell you all that we're going to just do a listener Q&A. We asked, you guys gave us some great questions. Uh, we won't be able to get to all of them, but we will try to get to a few. Um, so we're going to start with a set of questions that are about race, racism, the various things on race we've spoken about. Just a note, in a couple of these cases, we're going to um, refer you back to prior episodes so you can go listen. In some cases, your question hits on something we directly addressed in an episode. But in other cases, we're just going to try to give the, the short answer. So we've talked about race and racism before, but we thought there were a few questions here that we thought were, were interesting and a little bit of a different angle. So first question, we've touched on it a bit, but I think this is a good sort of direct place for us to start. And it's, what do you think of Black Lives Matter, the sentiment, the movement, and the organization? The person writes, I realize these are not all the same thing. So what do we think um, of Black Lives Matter? They do. The yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's um, yeah. I, the 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 statement itself, as a statement, is incontrovertible uh, in principle. Though it has been controverted throughout the history uh, of this country, right? Um, and so that's why you have a movement. Um, the organization people will find many things objectionable about the organization in terms of um, things they support or tout on their website or things of that sort. Um, that's fine. I think it's fine to critique folks and, and their positions. Just the way I think, just in the same way that I think we should be critiquing um, our political parties uh, and, and their platforms and their positions. But I think that there's a, a bit of a double standard, though, in terms of how people view the organization. Some people, uh, you know, can look at their p political parties, for example, and say, hey, uh, I agree with A, B, C, and D, but I reject, you know, J and K. Um, and they don't seem to want to allow that kind of association uh, with Black Lives Matter, the organization. Now, I'm not affiliated, don't have any plans to be affiliated. I don't know how many of our listeners would be. Uh, but I think we want to be careful of that kind of double standard uh, in our thinking as it relates to the organization. Uh, people can find common cause on some of their objectives, even if they're rejecting others. That's, again, what we do with our political parties. Um, and we probably ought to fight for some consistency there. Ben? Um, well, I think the the listener is wise to split it into three different things because it all depends on what you mean when you say Black Lives Matter. Obviously, the statement in itself um, is a wonderful affirmation of the reality that Black people are made in the image of God and are inherently valuable um, and worthy of dignity and respect. And so yeah, full-throated endorsement of, of the phrase, the sentiment. I think it's, I think it's well, well stated. I, I think part of the, I think part of the violent reaction you see against it in some quarters is because it's such an effective rhetorical device. And so I think that's a good thing. Um, the movement, I, I don't, you know, that 
that depends on what you mean by movement. Um, I think people exercising their constitutional rights to peaceably assemble in protest of injustice is a good thing. Our country has a long history of that. And so um, I'm pro all of that. If you are including uh, the violence that has happened in some cities uh, concurrently with uh, these protests or after these protests have ended, uh, obviously condemn that in all its forms. Uh, I am not convinced that those are the same groups of people. In fact, I imagine there's quite a little small bit of overlap instead of a large bit, if there's any overlap at all. Um, I think there are people who are going to use any excuse to cause mayhem. And this is one that they can use the cover of Black Lives Matter to do that and cause a ruckus in places like Portland. Um, the organization, um, I take the BD's point about political parties. Um, I think um, that's a good, that's good. I mean, I think Nick, you've talked about co-belligerency. So what does it look like for a coalition to come together? There's, I understand that. I mean, on its face though, like the, the destruction of the nuclear family that they talk about on uh, their website is obviously not, none of us would endorse that. None of us would agree with that. Right. Sure. Um, I think, I think it's interesting that it's such a broad coalition of like goals. Um, I think they would have been helped to be more single-mindedly focused. All that to say, I can't get, a, I can't get on board with the organization. Uh, it's it's anti-biblical in some ways. Um, that doesn't mean that as part of a broader coalition that there, there couldn't be some uh, work to be done together, but I am quite leery of the professional organization itself. Hmm. Well, so I'll, 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 so let me let me come back to that then because I think that um, it's um, so I'll I'll just start with the sentiment and the rhetoric. I think just to note that um, it is as Thabiti said, you know, tr simply true. Um, and I think I once saw a T-shirt that said, you know, I never said only Black Lives Matter, right? Like that's not what is trying to be like conveyed here. I do think. It is a testament to the brokenness and fallenness of the world that we live in, that that has to be asserted, but I would affirm that it has to be asserted. We live in a country whose history right, has, um, has repeatedly affirmed the opposite, that black lives don't matter vis-a-vis -vis other lives. And so it is in that context that you would say, this is not only important to affirm in general as being true, but important to affirm like with special emphasis. And I think that, I think that folks who are uncomfortable with the idea of reparations or of like, you know, affirmative action, which we've covered and are like are uncomfortable with that because they just think, let's just pretend we're all in the same place right now. And so why would you want to affirm that black lives matter any more than anyone else? This is where all lives matter comes from. But I think that is to misunderstand the context we find ourselves in. On the broader organizational question, I'm, I'm just imagining, the question is, what do you think of Black Lives Matter, the sentiment, the movement, and the organization? Well, I could ask a non-Christian friend of mine, what do you think of Christianity, the sentiment, the movement, and the organization? Mm -hmm. I realize they're not all the same thing. Mm -hmm. And again, I hope that we can show the, you know, as much grace in that direction as we would expect 
a person looking at Christianity, the sentiment, the movement, and the organization, recognizing that it represents, you know, there are there is a core set of beliefs that the three of us affirm. There is a core set of institutions we therefore feel are more inclined towards because of those beliefs, but it's part of a much broader um, array of things associated with the word Christianity. And you're always trying to contest and say, what's the truth within that, as it were. I think a movement like Black Lives Matter is similar in that regard. That's well put, Nick. Uh, and, and if I could piggyback on that a little bit, I think whatever movement we're engaging, I think it's our responsibility in the first instance to understand it on its own terms. So let, let me take something that uh, Ben made reference to that I hear so commonly. Um, people say, hey, the organization is out to destroy the nuclear family. Mm. I don't actually think that's true. I'm looking at the website now. Let me read three paragraphs from the website in their about section, which is where most people go to when they refer to this. They say, we make our spaces family friendly and enable parents to fully participate with their children. We dismantle the patriarchal practice that requires mothers to work, quote, double shifts, end quote, so that they can mother in private, even as they participate in public justice work. Now, just that's the first paragraph I want to read. And I'll just say right off the break, there's some things we might want to say differently, you know, given our own sensibilities, uh, like the, the language of mothers being required to work double shifts. Well, I, that could be problematic, depending on what one means and things of that sort. But Clearly here, they're affirming family and affirming parents participating with their children. Then comes the, the sort of um, culprit paragraph. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and quote villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. I don't read that to be a, a straightforward statement about destroying the Western nuclear family. I read that in my own historical cultural context, which is often and, and, and self-consciously put uh, emphasis on extended family and, and fictive kinship relationships. I read it in that context. It's simply to say that a nuclear family isn't the only way to do family. Now, again, I, I'm not endorsing that full full cell, um, I, I, my, my sensibilities around family and sexual ethics and so on are, are going to be much closer to the Bible, um, things of that sort. But even there, the Bible has actually a lot to say about extended kin. I mean, we're seeing sort of patriarchal lineages and families and kinship networks. Um, so I just think sometimes we come to a statement like that, somebody develops a trope, repeats it often over and over again. And what we're understanding is somebody's take on that, not the organization in its own context, on its own terms. Um, yeah, again, we could go on. There are other things here that straight, more straightforwardly would disagree with. Um, but I just wanted to use that as an illustration as I think we could be, whether it's political parties or an organization like Black Lives Matter, I think we have to first understand the organization in its own context and, and what it's attempting to say. Um, before we then begin to engage with it in sort of uh, all or nothing kind of ways. And again, to go back to my little flipped analogy, right? Like that's when a clever secularist, like, you know, just sort of reads a random excerpt from Leviticus and says, ha ha. Yeah. What about these shellfish? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And and without any context of what Christianity actually is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, 
let's go to the next question. So some evangelicals are adamant that there are no racial tensions between the state and persons of color. Others don't see them as big issues due to the way they interpret stats, statistics, and others. Um, others see it, but they advise the world will always have injustices, so we should wait for the Lord to come and sort everything out. What are our thoughts on sort of these various, let's call them excuses for not focusing on, you know, racial injustice? I went first last time. <laughs> yeah, 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 fair enough. Yeah, Ben, you first. And I will, I promise I'll go first, even though at some point, even I'm the one asking. Um, all right, let me parse the question. Um, some evangelicals are adamant there are no racial tensions between the state and people of color. I mean, this seems, if there, I'm sure those people exist, they shouldn't watch the news a little bit more um, because clearly there are tensions. Um, so ultimately is the question is, do we just wait for the Lord to bring his kingdom and, you know, kind of sit on our hands? I, I mean, I, uh, the, the answer is no. Um, and, T and I had this conversation, I think two episodes ago, a little bit of like, okay, acts of justice are not the gospel, yet they are mandatory for people who believe in the gospel. Um, and so this, to me, this is an issue of obedience. Now, what does it mean to be obedient to scriptures and be a just, work for justice in your particular spheres? I mean, that's going to look, that's going to look different for different people in lots of different places. And so I want to leave room for people to pursue that as their consciences dictate what is incontrovertible, um, what cannot be disagreed with is that the Bible demands that you be a just person. Um, so to say, to take a passive attitude towards, you know, your responsibilities as a Christian reminds me of the church and Thessalonica who said, Hey, I'm, I don't have to work my day job anymore. The Lord's going to return any day now. Um, and Paul exhorts them that they should be working diligently. Um, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to draw a principle of, yes, you are to work diligently at your day job. You're also to work diligently at the Christian life until you, until the Lord takes you home or until he returns. And so um, I, I think it's a, a weak excuse at passivity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, we would never contemplate this on the abortion issue. Like it, it would be a laughable proposition to sort of the, 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 the very same people making these assertions. Let's just wait for the Lord to come and sort everything out. Let's not, let's not lift a finger in defense of the unborn. Right. And I, there's just a, there's just a hypocrisy there that you said this on our abortion episode, Thabiti, which this is a little strange, but like the unborn are easy victims to defend. Whereas those who are the victims of racial injustice are more complicated victims because they are human beings who have lived lives <laughs> of whatever length. And, um, and that I think makes it easier for people to kind of rationalize like, well, there's not much we get to the poor will always be among you. Let's, let's sort of misuse that scripture. Right. And just say, therefore let's not do um, anything. Um, and I, and I just think it's a, there's a, there's a, there's a nearsightedness and pro just motivated reasoning, frankly, that's like sort of comfortable with one set of issues and not comfortable with another. And I think my encouragement to people is 
force yourself to get uncomfortable. Like that's, that's, I mean, that is what the greatest prophets have done is they have made us uncomfortable. Jesus's words make us uncomfortable. They challenge us. I think that's what is needed for the person who holds these beliefs. Or it's not to cut off tea, but it reminds me of evangelism. Like the Lord is going to save who he's going to save. He hasn't, he has an elect, right? <laughs> Yet that's no reason not to evangelize to not evangelize would be, to disregard and disobey the scriptures. I think to me, this is a pretty similar. similar. Yeah. yeah. I, I appreciate the questioner's attempt to sort of break um, evangelicals here into different categories. Those who say there's no racial tensions, um, those who see some tensions, but don't think they're big issues or um, big in scope, I assume, um, based how they're looking at stats. Um, and those who say, hey, you know, we should wait for Jesus. Uh, that, that last category, I think you, you guys are rightly driving a spear through that kind of apathy um, in the face of injustice just won't be applauded by Jesus. That won't be impressive to the Father on the day that we give an account. Um, so I, I entirely agree with you there. Um, it's, it's that first category I want to speak to just a little bit. Those who say there, there are no racial tensions. Um, those are the folks who I think have to engage in the highest level of um, a kind of willful blindness, right? Um, and they have to do that on the shoulders of progress that has explicitly addressed racial tension between African Americans in the States. In other words, what do you think the civil rights movement is? Uh, it, it's, it's an explicit call for the state to stop categorically oppressing its black citizens. What do you think the abolitionist movement is? Well, it's, a, it's an explicit call for the state uh, to stop allowing for the oppression of its African-American citizens. You, you cannot read the history of this country in any way that legitimately um, misses this fact that, that the, the very nature of the relationship between African-Americans and, and, and this government is is one of um, victim and perpetrator. Um, it's it's one of subjected people and oppressive government. I, just no other way to read that. Um, now, what happens is, I think there's a because of the advances of the civil rights movement, there is this worldview that kind of develops, um, particularly among um, evangelicals, white evangelicals, many white white citizens. Um, and it goes something like this, that used to be the case. Now we've had the civil rights movement. Now those things don't exist anymore. Ipso facto, we now live in a society that is ordered basically fairly and distributes to each person according to their merits. Um, and the law basically works the way it ought to work, right? Now that's a, that's a religious commitment. Right, that's not an empirical commitment. That, that's 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 a philosophical commitment with without sort of evidence, right? And in fact, it's a philosophical commitment that people hold contrary to the evidence. And so there becomes a kind of confirmation bias, right, where every sort of data point that you present contrary to that view gets kind of read and interpreted in a way that reinforces the view. Um, what's really important about this is these sort of worldviews are, are part of what's at stake in our laws. Our laws are not objective arbiters of justice. Our laws are actually enshrining the, the social morality, 
the power structures and relationships that exist in the society and justifying those. Um, and so we have these clashes in the country, in the law, in the, in the sort of social discourse between people who view this issue from the vantage point of victims, victimized people, and pe people who view these issues from the vantage point of perpetrators or empowered people. Um, and so it's that first category that, that I think is most problematic because it's living according to a worldview that's not empirical. Um, the second category probably suffers from that too, but is at least at willing to admit there's some data, even if it's saying, ah, we don't really think it's that bad, at which point you're not necessarily dealing with data, you're dealing with conclusions that may be more or less well-founded, um, depending on what data that folks are looking at. Sorry for that diatribe. Uh, just, a, just a plug here, our brother Bradley Mason is doing this sort of slow walk through the historical development of critical race theory. And he's got a post coming up uh, at the front porch um, on Dr. Alan Freeman and his work uh, on this very issue. I, I think people will be repaid well if they read that, if they read that post. It's really, really important for people to sort of just educate themselves about these things and about this history before dismissing it out of hand. Mm. Right? I think mm. it's funny. I'm, I, I don't know why I'm thinking about this, but I, I, um, <laughs> I'm, I saw this tweet this morning that I couldn't get out of my head. And it was someone who said, can't wait for people to learn about sundown towns the same way they learned about the Tulsa massacre. Um, these are both relatively more obscure things that your average person educated in U.S. history won't have learned about. Right. There were some pretty terrible sort of either state-sponsored or state-sanctioned violence against, against Black people, like over the course of the last century and the century before. And uh, the sentiment's right there, which is just to say, we're, we just keep being reminded of things that people who study this stuff actually know about. And the rest of us, are, they're just making their way into popular understanding now. Like we need to be on the leading edge of that popular understanding. Um, yeah, so I just think that's really, really important. Um, so, uh, all right, so let's take a break. We're gonna go ahead and switch categories of questions. I, I will wanna note, there are a few, like I said, a few questions in every category that have been answered before. So the one of them in this category was, how do you respond to people who label racial equity conversations as CRT, critical racist theory, and Marxism and dismiss it? Um, and I just wanna note that two episodes ago, two episodes ago, uh, at um, we, we covered this in, in talking about just general, about justice in general. So I'd, I'd recommend you go back to that episode to hear a bit more about that. Um, so, all right, with that, we'll take a break and then we will switch gears. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. And we're back. All right, so second group of questions is really about sort of how we vote. And I want to note that I believe it was in season two. We did actually have an episode that was about 
sort of, how are we gonna think about voting in the coming election? But we thought it might be good to revisit a couple of these questions, given that we're on the eve of an election, it's coming in a few months time. So first sort of question cluster, we've, we've smushed two of them together here. Why can't voting for an independent or third party candidate when the choices of the two nominees are unacceptable be considered a legitimate vote? Um, how do you vote? Do you vote strategically by platform? By principle, do you have no compromise when you vote or lesser of two evils? How do we think about voting um, in that regard? Um, yeah, so his first, or the person's first question, uh, why can't voting for an independent or third party candidate be be legitimate or be acceptable? Uh, it is, it is absolutely acceptable. Totally legit, yeah. You are free. You are free, my brother or sister, to vote for a third party. Please. Uh, no, I won't electioneer, but uh, so is, far, is there a third party candidate? There's a few. There's a libertarian okay. one. Which, there are always. Yeah. Oh, Ben said the, the L word. There's yeah, a libertarian I one. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, there's a there's like a Catholic Workers Party that I forget the name of that that as Nick and I talked about in our last episode like yes that's right kind of socially liberal and um, uh, socially conservative which is not socially a conservative fiscally liberal yes yeah, right. sorry um, anyway briefly my philosophy of voting and it hasn't changed much since the last time I've got two buckets one is their policy positions in rank order and so if they are if they're doing things on policy that I think are wrong slash immoral and those ranked choices are higher, if you miss two or three of those, I won't vote for you. Or if you miss a whole bunch of the lower ranked ones, I won't vote for you. And then the second bucket uh, is, and this is, I think, borrowing from Thabiti, is, <laughs> is this person a good exemplar of, of moral character? And that's a yes, no. The answer is yes, then they are not disqualified from getting my vote. If the answer is no, they will not receive my vote. Yeah. I'm, I'm in similar, I, I like Ben's two buckets there. Um, I, I think I, I, would, I would be operating at least informally with those same couple of categories. I think, however, the, the third category for me, um, it's some ways related to the, the policy bucket, um, is, is I am trying to do an artful, not scientific, an artful job of um, estimating what I think will be the cumulative effect of this person's um, policy position and, and moral character on the country and on my community and on vulnerable people writ large, right? This is why I, I'm not a single issue voter. Um, I, I think abortion is the largest scandal in the country. Uh, the biggest moral issue uh, in our day. I, I, I weighed it heavily. I weighed it probably more than most any other thing I can think of right now. And yet, I realized that if that's my single issue, and if I apply that in a way that leads me just to, say, conservative judges, I am historically and on balance probably also going to be doing damage to civil rights. Um, because many of the folks who are conservative justices on abortion uh, are terrible on the protection of voting rights and the Voting Rights Act and, and other kinds of things. And so um, I think it's a moral responsibility for me to try to weigh those things uh, and to prayerfully do the best I can at casting a vote that does the most good um, for the most people 
uh, in the country. So I, I almost become a, a bit of a, not a libertarian, but a utilitarian, um, you know, in that way. So, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tie this in with another question, which we're, we're sort of going to answer. Someone also asked, should a Christian ever vote for a candidate with pro-choice on their ballot, like a candidate who has a pro-choice position? And I'll just wrap that into this question to say, maybe sometimes in some circumstances, right? It, it really just depends. I guess the most important answer to that question is simply that it's not an automatic disqualifier. Um, you know, uh, it certainly is something that would weigh very heavily, right? But just to put my cards on the table, like I, I will be voting for Joe Biden this November, um, you know, in my powerless, meaningless vote in the District of Columbia, I will nonetheless be casting it for um, for, for Joe Biden. And I think that um, that's not always the right answer, right? You know, part of it's about looking at the alternative. I think there is Christian freedom in how we use our votes. So if you kind of want to conceive of your vote as nothing but a statement of who you are, then yeah, you better find the most niche aligned with you candidate you can possibly find, right? I reject the idea that that's the only sort of valid use of a vote though, right? A vote is a coalitional sort of statement. It is saying I sign on to some but not all of what this person is for and the movement and the politics and the government they would bring uh, to us and what that would mean for human flourishing. It, you can even start to calculate like what headway could or could not this person make on the issue in question, right? And when you're voting for a state official or a local official or a federal official, that changes a great deal. Um, you know, Ben spoke a few episodes ago of how he thought the sort of conservative strategy on Supreme Court justices hadn't produced the results we thought it would. And so maybe you start changing the way you vote because conservative judges matter less to you than they did before. The world didn't change, the issues didn't change, but your calculation about the effects changes, right? So I guess the most important thing to note is that there's a lot of freedom. Like if you feel conscience bound to say my vote is a statement, then you know, by all means, that's how you should think about your vote. And you may end up voting for nobody <laughs> because there's no one who's good enough as it yeah. were. Um, but you may also decide, nope, my vote is kind of a functional instrument meant to try to move us sort of an, an inch toward better, which is, I think, more pragmatic, more realistic for the world we live in and more what you might expect out of a democracy. Um, and then there are times when your conscience will simply disqualify certain candidates, but not others, right? So Donald Trump falls into that category for many people. Um, Hillary Clinton fell into that category for many people four years ago, right? And so um, I think that you just, the, the, again, there's, I think, a lot of freedom here. Um, yeah. Can I, can I say two things, Nick, real yeah. quick? Um, one is on that point about or vote for no one. I do think, actually, it is morally permissible not to vote, right? And I say that as someone, right, in a community with tons of folks who shed a lot of blood and, and laid mm -hmm. down lives, to gain the franchise, but I stand also in the company of W.B. Du Bois and a whole bunch of other folks who looked at choices sometimes and said, actually, neither one of these rascals, right, are deserving of the vote. That would, to vote for either one would be to demean the vote itself. Um, and so we may, we may actually arrive at that position. I'm glad that you said that, brother. I think that's, I think that's a, a fine position to people to land in if that's where they land. The other thing I want to say is, you know, I used the example of conservative judges being bad on um, maybe good on abortion, but a bad on voting rights. And, and just to balance the scales there a little bit, you just talked about um, Biden and Harris. Well, I'm, I'm conflicted. I, I don't, it's, it's going to be hard for me to countenance a vote for Biden-Harris 
not just on the abortion issue, but these are actually two folks who have a track record on criminal justice stuff that, you know, is, is way, way less than encouraging, right? <laughs> is, is as problematic as the people we imagine on the other side. So um, again, it's just an illustration of how I think this is a complex calculation. And if you're inclined to sort of just not think about it in partisan, tribal, you know, um, party affiliation, straight line kinds of ways, you're just going to be involving yourself in a lot of nuance and a lot of homework and, um, yeah, endeavoring to do something very difficult with the vote. But, but in my opinion, something very necessary. And that's, a, that's the aim at the best results we can get on the whole. Now, briefly, this is where I remind both of you that I also made an argument for non-voting and you two were, Australia, Australia, we love Australia. Ben, love keeps no record of wrongs, brother. <laughs> I get to be right on this show like twice. So. <laughs> there is a deep cut 2012 blog post by Tabini about not voting for anybody, right? So mm -hmm. there you go. Like, we can, yeah, you can, you can find it. He's on the record talking about that. So, so. so you were right, Ben. You agreed with me and you were right. That's right. <laughs> yep. Okay, so, so one level up from voting. So here's the other question in this category. How do Christians offer a distinct voice in polarized politics? when the politics are often of straw men or straw people, as we might say today, alternatives between the communist woke socialist baby killer on the one hand and the white supremacist fascist on the other hand. Is it possible to speak out with a distinctly Christian voice or should we just avoid the raucous debate? And by the way, I should note, there is an episode at the end of, I want to say season two called what, what we mean when we talk about prophetic politics that I think give some color to this general debate, but let's let's all of us take five minutes today to sort of address this question. What do you guys think? I, I will also just note, and we'll let Ben address the question. I will also just note that those words were the questioner's words. That's not how you characterize the two right, sides. That is right. Those are my <laughs> the questioner was trying to say, these are the caricatures on either side, yeah. right? Yeah, which I think is an, it's actually a pretty effective construction <laughs> of the caricatures well, on either side. Yeah, and I think, not only is it possible to speak out with a distinctly Christian voice, uh, I think I think I think what we're saying is that it's necessary. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, I think I think you know, I yeah. There's we cannot. There should not be an issue that cannot be discussed in the church amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. Like there's the whole the whole like well, no politics at the dinner table. Like this is something. This is something you hear. Now, there is a lot of leeway between like never talking about it and, you know, we're going to, we're going to make this a part of every sermon. Like there's, obviously there's, there's a wide range of options. I think the point that I've landed on is that we have to be able to talk about politics while still speaking the truth in love, being gentle, being slow to anger, being quick to listen, just all of the biblical mandates about how we speak to one another. Um, I mean, it's a low bar, but if we do some of that, we, that is a distinctive Christian witness given how bad the world has become at speaking in those ways. Um, and so I think, I, I, that's why I was so helped by the episode we did last week, Nick. Like we just talked about why Nick leans left and I lean right. And it's like, 
when you talk about those experiences, it's like, yeah, that makes complete sense. And we can have these conversations without saying, well, you know, Ben's a bigot and Nick wants to take all my money. Like there's, it, it's helpful to relate to a human being instead of, you know, whatever's got you fired up on Twitter today. Yeah. I, you know, my understanding, and I'm not a sort of a church historian, right, is though the, the church has historically struggled with this question. How engaged should we be? How involved should we be? How engaged and involved should we tell people who are Christians to be? Um, and I think the reason for that is because it's easy, like it's almost intellectually more easy to either be completely withdrawn or completely engaged on the world's terms, right? The hard thing is to sort of cut that middle ground where you're engaged, but you don't let yourself be in the world, but not of it in the way that you engage. Um, and I do think it means conducting and comporting ourselves in a way that's different from your sort of standard ways that political debates happen. I do think that it is about um, shying away from those caricatures. I do think it's about not sort of assuming that we know what's in a person's heart when they decide to say or do something and hence to resist the temptation to label them a certain way. Like, you know, so um, uh, just to take the labels here, white supremacist fascist, uh, you know, again, maybe I drew that out of somebody saying, you know, that they wish things were the way they were 40 years ago. Okay, so historically, or, you know, maybe you might say, oh yeah, but that was a time of white supremacism. And, you know, that's, that, that, you know, well, that was a time when that ideology reigned more and that must be what you mean. Well, it might not be what that person means, right? You got to dig underneath to understand. On the other hand, sort of baby killer, right? Like, and it's like, does a pro-choice person, is that actually the objective they're seeking, right? Um, or is the objective more complicated than that? Which, we, again, we've talked about that on the sort of abortion episode, right? Which isn't to say that I disagree any less, but then you have to say, well, what's really going on here? And can we engage productively with, with the other person, as it were? Um, so yeah, I, I, I just think that it's, it is, Ben, you're exactly right, it is necessary um, that we find ways to engage and to resist the temptation to be pulled into engaging the way everyone else does. See, Ben, you're right again. You're on a roll, man. It's necessary. I, I entirely agree with you. Um, uh, maybe a, a, a couple of book recommendations for the questioner here. Um, you know, Niebuhr's Christ in Culture is still, you know, a framework that's, that's you know, pretty, pretty dominant in this question of how we stand in relationship to these issues. How do we speak prophetically in these issues and the sort of postures that he sketches out there. Um, again, I think we'll, we'll give the reader some categories. And then Don Carson's revisiting Christ and culture, uh, his examination of, of Niebuhr's categories and, and arguments there are really helpful. Um, uh, Faithful Presence, a recent book that's come out um, that is, um, I think, hugely helpful in terms of describing one view of a kind of prophetic posture um, and, and, and Christian engagement in the discourse. I think that's a really helpful, helpful view. Um, I think what I would then say in, in terms of my, my own counsel here is uh, just a few things, right? Ephesians 4.29, you know, speak in ways that minister grace to the hearer, that builds the other up. Um, you know, James, 
you know, be careful with anger and, and speaking out of anger and, um, you know, recognize the difficulty of bridling the tongue. Uh, so, so much of the Proverbs is on, on speech and how we engage. Uh, that's, that's really helpful material to, to sort of just be saturated in uh, and apply in the discussion. And, and along with all of that, I think what I would want to suggest is that, that we actually speak less and speak more directly and specifically um, to the sort of policy issues or the big sort of cultural ideas that we're addressing um, so that our voice gets tighter and that it gets aimed more effectively. Uh, because, it, you know, we're speaking in a context where there are like a gazillion voices all clamoring to be heard. And if we're just sort of wantonly sort of adding our voice to all of that noise, well, then we just become part of the noise. Um, and so there's a sense in which I think we've just got to learn as Christians to be tighter in our communication and more pointed um, on, on the issues that we are addressing. And finally, the, the, the questioner asked a question in terms of how should the church engage these things? I, I think the word church is in the way there, right? I think we need to at least distinguish between Christian leaders in local churches uh, and the members of local churches, because I think there are some different responsibilities there. Uh, Christian leaders have to speak to these things in ways that actually keep in mind the whole of the church in a slightly different way uh, and shepherd the whole of the church in a slightly different way than, say, a layperson who may have a vocation in politics um, or an, an intelligent layperson who simply likes to engage in these issues or someone who's just trying to figure out how to vote. You know. Um, that word, the church, is too vague, and I think it sort of papers over some nuance in um, our responsibilities and, and perhaps even our freedoms, depending on what, what positions we, we hold in the church. I'll, I'll say one last thing, which is just that if I, th I hope we and you guys, all of you listening, should hold us accountable for this, that we try to make that the way we communicate, both on the podcast, but I've been thinking lately about our brother Josiah Davis, who has taken over our Twitter handle and has vastly improved our, you know, sort of <laughs> tweeting just about, but notice what we tweet is generally just sort of excerpts from the episodes, things we're saying. They're not things that are meant to sort of drive engagement or like take Twitter's algorithms and like up the rage factor, like the way social media works. Like we hope that that'll always be the way we engage, even if it means our listenership grows slowly <laughs> rather than very fast. Um, so, I, you know, hopefully that's how we can all engage. But to be your point is actually a good segue to our third set of questions, which are explicitly church focused. Um, so we will talk about those after. And we're back. All right, so there are a number of questions. It's funny, you've seen us in the last few episodes start to say, you know, the more we talk about prophetic politics, the more there's sort of church family business that comes up. And so there's a set of questions that are just about how do these issues play out inside the church? Um, so first question, these are a lot of these, so a lot of these might go to you first, Bidi, or you first, Ben, as the, as the pastors or pastors in training uh, here. So, how would you counsel church members who are hurt by how the church is addressing the issue of race and racism, the sort of current affairs and events 
the pain seems to either draw them away from church or make them resent fellow believers. So what's our pastoral advice when it comes to that? When we think about church members. Yeah. Ben, you want to start? Oh, well, this time, oh, okay, I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so personally, um, this might be over, oversharing for a pot. Um, there are a few things that have happened in my life that um, are extraordinarily painful and they were at the hands of church members. And so I, I hear that. I, I feel it. Um, the people who have hurt me the most in my life have been Christians. And so I have empathy for people who have been hurt by unloving or ungentle or racist or harsh responses from other Christians. So I want to, I want to affirm that it is good and right to feel hurt by those things. Um, I think what has encouraged me to continue to persist in love for the church is that it's Christ's bride. And so Christ loves the church so much that he was willing to take on the shame of the cross, shed his blood, um, and, and die so that the church could be reconciled to him. And so if Jesus is willing to do that for the church, which, oh, by the way, I'm a part of and need that grace too. Um, how can I not love it? How can I not love the things that Christ loves? Yeah. Well, no, I think, I think that's right in terms of a, a heart posture. Um, just a couple things to add to that in terms of, um, one thing in terms of perspective, a couple things in terms of practice. Uh, Jackie Hill Perry um, tweeted something out maybe about two years ago that that I just it just stuck with me. Just she asked a rhetorical, not a rhetorical question. She asked a question: Do you know who uh, healed me of my church hurt? And her answer was the church. Right. Um, I think there's it's important for us to recognize that the individual local church that might have hurt us is not really all local churches, right? Not all Christians have heard us in that way, by and large. Um, and so we ought to expect that the grace of healing uh, and the grace of, of, of sort of understanding will also come from the church, just as surely as the bruises and, and the pains have, have sometimes come there. And um, that's, that's not something you just easily live into, right? You get, that, that takes some vulnerability and some risk. Uh, hence what Ben has been saying is really important. You've, we've got to meet the hurts with some theology um, that motivates us to love the church despite the wounds. Um, now, some things in terms of practice. I think the first thing is, one, try and go to your brother and be reconciled. You know, don't just leave without having a conversation, right? Don't, don't just, you know, throw a hissy fit and, you know, ghost the church, cancel the church. Um, go have the conversation and, and go have the conversation with a certain, with, with the biblical spirit of stick to itness, right? If your brother has offended you, you know, go and be reconciled. Peter says, how, how many times? Seven? Well, the Lord says 70 times seven. So there's to be a, a, a posture of stick to itness and perseverance and so on and stay at it as long as the other person or persons um, are also staying at the table. You know, fight for reconciliation, fight for unity. That that's the that's the right fight. Ephesians four, three, do everything to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Right. So go have the conversation. 
number two, uh, and actually this is number one, but pray, pray a whole lot, mm-hmm. pray a whole lot. Um, ask the Lord for help. And we, we, we're, my sense is we, we're not having, we, we're having far too many conversations about these things without that prerequisite of prayer uh, mm-hmm. and asking for help, which means we're probably having these conversations in our flesh um, rather than in the spirit. Uh, number three, when, when you're sort of having these conversations, um, try not to allow your hurt to become your Lord. Mm-hmm. Try not to serve your hurt, right? Try not to let it, let it rule. Um, now, again, like, as Ben did very, very wisely when he started, I, I don't want to, I'm not trying to diminish hurt and I'm not trying to say, don't, don't pay attention to it. Don't respond to it. And even I'm not, I'm not saying don't protect yourselves. There may be situations that where you just need to do exactly that. That's the main thing, protect yourself. So if it's abusive or, or some of that sort, protect yourself. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about what we might call the sort of regular pitched conversations about politics or, or things of that sort. Um, and you get hurt, you get wounded. Don't nurse the, don't, don't, don't coddle the wound. Don't, don't, don't feed it. Don't, don't let it lord over you. Um, but, but obey Christ in, in, in all that he calls us to in terms of reconciliation and, and those practices around reconciliation. Uh, another practical thing one could do, it's important. Proverbs says it's to the glory of man to overlook an offense. Uh, I just think there's a whole lot of stuff we, we've got to kind of grow up and start overlooking. Um, we, we differ. The three of us on this phone call differ. Um, I've probably said something in this phone call that that's kind of pricked one of you or both of you uh, in in some way, and um, and and you guys, as you as you have done in previous episodes, is maybe one of those things where you go, I, I know T, I love T. It's not what T was up to. wasn't trying to hurt me. It's going to be water on a duck. I'm not going to let that not going to let that interrupt our fellowship. So we got to overlook some things as well. Um, lastly, just entered a conversation, um, suspecting that at some place in some way, you're probably wrong, right? You're probably missing some information. You're probably not understanding some issue or understanding some person. If we just begin the conversation, assuming I might not be right at every point that, that may help us with some humility to actually have the conversation in a fruitful way. Nothing for me to add on that one. Um, I, um, there's So related, slightly more pointed question. At what point does racism and political idolatry or either of those things become grounds for excommunication from the church? Yeah, wow, great question. Um, I, I, my quick answers would be two or threefold. Um, one is Titus 3, 10 and 11. Uh, when those issues become divisive in the church, uh, Paul's clear there, want a person once, want him twice, after that have nothing to do with him. Um, so if, if persons are, are sort of acting politically or racially in ways that are dividing the church um, and you have admonished and warned, uh, the leaders have admonished and warned, but they have not heeded, um, that would be a, a time to do that. We don't, we don't have the right to split Christ's body in ways that he doesn't. Um, the other, the other, um, time where this may be, uh, discipline may be appropriate is when the, what the questioner calls idolatry 
um, begins to take observable sinful form, right? So uh, I think it's I think it's when it comes to practicing church discipline uh, that the process of discipline is going to be most sound when we're talking about sins not of the heart that people can't really see and observe and document but maybe are left to debate like say greed or covetousness but when that sin then begins to be manifest and material when you can observe it and document it and and so on so when those things become when those sins become sins that are observable you know someone is using racist language in the church foyer um someone is attending clan rallies and burning crosses you know um whatever the case may be right when they become sort of observable um then i think you're in a position to practice discipline in a way that's that's defensible and clear which will serve the body and serve unity when the body is called to act Ben, anything you'd add to that i mean i think she covered it pretty well i mean you know it's sin, it's sin as any other sin is so matthew 18 is still a good process right like if somebody is ensnared in a sin um we're going to approach them typically one-on-one, two-on-one, and eventually it's going to make its way up to the entire church. And then if they continue to not be repentant, the the church should remove the unbeliever. I think the exception uh, I might add, or special case I might add, which T alluded to a little bit, is if the sin is um, either like notorious and public, like one of your members gets unmasked at a Klan rally and is on the nightly news, like, yeah, that's that's that could be a case where it's you know do not pass go, do not collect two hundred. You're gonna you're gonna get excommunicated um, straight away. Of course, with the goal of hopefully that person is repentant and restored to fellowship at a later date. Um, I think too the other the other where things might be different is if it's if it's an elder. Um, um, yeah. you, you may want to you may need to rebuke them in the presence of all so that all may learn to fear. Um, and so that would be, those would be two circumstances where racism in particular, political idolatry is tricky. T, T explained it. it is, it's tricky. Um, but racism in particular, that's where you, a congregation may be wise and moving more quickly than slowly. Yeah. And, and I think it's uh, maybe people have, maybe to make something even more explicit that I think we were all, it's probably clear in our own minds as we're talking about this is, Nick, we are talking about sins. We're not talking about opinions, right? <laughs> we're talking about actual sins, right? Uh, Mark Lauterbach's little book, The Transforming Community, came out several years ago. It's really helpful. Um, he says, listen, you know, you ought to be able to go to a section of scripture, have the person read it in context and interpret it to you. Um, and that section of scripture sort of demonstrate clearly um, that what's in view is is a sin. It's either a, a duty that God commands that's been omitted or something God forbids that the person is doing. Um, and that's where the, the political idolatry bit has been a sin is tricky. Um, because for example, I, I, don't, I don't know that, um, I don't think it's the case that voting for a candidate that I don't like is a sin <laughs> or that I think is morally reprehensible is a sin. Um, and I think this is where that question has sometimes gone in conversation. Ooh, this person voted for X. Um, 
we should excommunicate them or they should be disciplined. Well, slow down. As we've been saying earlier in the podcast, it's a whole lot of things that go into a voting decision. Um, and um, there's no text, book, chapter, verse that says, hey, voting for this candidate um, was necessarily a sin. So I, I think we want to just be clear that what we're talking about here when we're talking about excommunication are unrepentant sins that are defined by the scripture. I have two thoughts on this, and I'd be interested in your guys' view on this. Um, on the racism side of things, what I would say is racism is tricky because repentance for racism is just so dang hard. Like, it's a thing we're almost allergic to in general, and, like, it feels like within kind of, you know, so-called white, white evangelicalism, we sure are, right? So I do feel like there's something there where there's a process you know, assuming it's not a publicly scandalous sin where there is kind of rebuke. And really this question is, are you so hard of heart, right? That like you can't own up to having said or done something racist or having offended a fellow church member. And I think there's almost a, I don't know, I almost feel as if there's a, there's a, there's a special scrutiny there in terms of just asking, because it's just, it's what it's, it's easier to repent of like, I feel as if in churches it is easier to repent of sexual sin. It is like literally more acceptable like, um, than to repent of racism. And I, I just think that's something in our shepherding and our care that we need to be thinking about, right? In terms of like, um, in, in, in terms of what we heard. I, I, I don't mean that to say, hey, we should be excommunicating more people for racism. What I do mean to say is like, we should be, calling a spade a spade and saying that is a sin that deserves that level of serious attention more often than we probably do. So that's kind of my one thought. My thought on political idolatry is, and you've heard me sort of like, you know, beat this horse before, but I do think that there's, you know, I think I said earlier, like, you know, there are, there are statements and declarations that affirm and like declare anathema various things like you're, on on sexual ethics there's one question here about social you know the statement on social justice from you know from john MacArthur and how it has all these sort of things about like this is good and this is bad and yet like we can't bring ourselves to sort of make such statements either about racism or about political idolatry right so i'm like you know, I think my joke was we're more likely to kind of, we, we would always say like, you know, Joel Osteen is a heretic and like doesn't mean, shouldn't be in cooperation with like say the SBC or whatever. We'd never say that about Robert Jeffress, you know, the pastor of First Baptist Dallas, who I was just looking this up, literally interviewed Sean Hannity at a Sunday morning service, right? Like a Sunday morning service, like, you know, the service that we are conscience binding our members to go to right, to essentially receive political propaganda, um, you know, that's in this case pro-Trump, pro-Republican Party, whatever it is, nary a word about, there are no statements saying that is anathema, that person should be branded a heretic, and yet I don't, I don't see the difference. I don't see why we shouldn't be treating that in and of itself as its own form of political idolatry. So I think, it, I, think I guess in, in my sense, in both cases, we just don't, we just don't, sharpen the edges to say these are sins worthy of rebuke nearly enough in either case. Um, so if not more excommunications, more of the steps on the road toward that, I think would be welcome in every church. Yeah. Two, two thoughts come to mind when you say that. One, I think T and I are both thinking in terms of like the local congregations of which we are a part. And so I think the way 
that political idolatry is most likely to express itself is in divisiveness, 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 um, right? Like you must, you must vote this way. You must speak out on this. You must. Like that is, so I think that's why that gets special attention from us. I, Robert Jeffress treatment of the, you know, Trump and the Republican party, like that, that all seems problematic from a distance. Certainly would cite it as sin. I, I'm less concerned. I'm not going to be held to account by God to, you know, to say, you know, so that there is like, a, I think he should be critiqued, called out. I agree with everything you're saying. I just have a special understanding of the SPC almost made us choose between him and Russell Moore, just, just to like give an idea, right? Like that was a thing we almost like had to, had to see happen. I am not in the, I, I, uh, the SBC is a, a denomination of, which I'm not that familiar, even though I've been in it for a few years, but that's totally fair. The other thing I want to ask about is, so I take your point about we are not quick to rebuke racism as quickly as say pornography, right? Like that is the classic. At the same time, my ears perk up a little bit at, at, you know, and maybe you can just tell me more what you mean when you say special scrutiny. I don't, I don't want to elevate this in, in a place, yeah, I don't want to elevate this as the super sin, right? Because I think part of the reason people are afraid to confess it is, is there's, there's a sense in which there's no coming back from that, right? Um, and so this is where I'd want to lean into, that, that's not always the case, but I think sometimes people are like, well, if I admit I'm a racist, like no one in polite society will ever talk to me ever again, right? Um, and so this is where I want to push into, there is grace for the repentant racist, right? And I know, yes. So I, I guess, talk to me more about what you mean on, on scrutinizing that sin. There are differing opinions about this out in the world of sort of discussing race and racism, right? There's this paradox, I think, about how racism both needs to be understood as being evil and as more common <laughs> than we think it is. And therefore, it's not like you're a race, like literally you just named the scandalous example of you were unmasked at a Klan rally. Like that is a very, 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 very tiny fraction of like the sorts of like sins we're doing. Thank God for that, right? Like in terms of like what's happening in our churches today, it's much more likely to take the form of microaggressions, a sort of like insensitive remark possibly bias in behavior or in like hiring or in treatment and the way you speak to somebody, right? Those are all things which depending on how you want to use your definitions, you can describe as racist actions. Does that make you like, you know, a genocidal person? No. <laughs> um, but do they need to be dealt with? Like, yes, right? And so again, different people have different opinions on this, but the idea of actually making it lowering the bar for what we call racism and saying actually more of us are guilty of it than we think. It's a more common sin and therefore one that we need sort of daily refinement and renewal and repentance of. I think that's what I'm getting at there, Ben. It's not like now we're on the hunt for like, you know, the sort of Nazis in the congregation and more of you are Nazis than you, than you, than we, than you think, right? It's more like it's a, it, is a, it is a more common sort of set of sins that accrete over time um, and create an environment that I think we need to all take responsibility for. Yeah, and I think this is where some of the language like of the of the quote unquote world is perhaps not helping us. Like racist is almost like an identity marker. 
right? Like if you are a racist, it's like you are that. Whereas somebody who speaks carelessly, foolishly, hatefully, which is probably how I term a microaggression, like there's biblical language for that. And so I, I think that there's a sense in which, yeah, we're, I would personally, pastorally, I would push someone towards biblical passages that command speaking the truth in love, gentleness, you only saying that which is useful for building up, and then explaining how saying whatever foolish thing um, kind of violates those principles. Um, I think, yeah, I want to, I want to separate the world's language around this stuff from biblical language to the degree that I, I can. Um, Cause I think once you start using the language of the world, it puts, it puts hackles up that can be a barrier to repentance. Mm-hmm. Well, one, one book I'll recommend, um, which I've been reading uh, is uh, how to be an anti-racist by Ibram X. Kendi. So not a Christian author, but I think makes this argument then not everyone agrees with him. I should note, right. Even among like those who are sort of um, in the fight for racial justice, but it's this idea of like racism, there are racist actions and anti-racist actions as it were. And they're they're sort of like putting it into more common usage as it were, rather than simply saying it's beyond the pale. You can't return to polite society once you've been, you know, sort of proven to have done a racist thing. Um, Tabini, what, what do you think? Oh, you guys have me uh, swirling around in a number of thoughts here. Um, So I have sympathy for the notion that um, racism is the unpardonable sin, right? Um, I think think that's overblown, but I think it's, I I understand it. the reason I think it's overblown is in point of fact, we don't have many examples of churches excommunicating people for racism. Mm. Um, that's, you know, and um, yeah, so I just think, I just think it's overblown. And, and in point of fact, um, the reason this is an awkward conversation is because for like all of the history of the church in the United States, it's never practiced discipline for racism. Yeah. Just hasn't. It, it is in fact, theologically and socially sanctioned racism for most, for much of its history, most churches in the country. Um, so uh, I, I think the, the sort of, the, the, the sort of angst that people express about not being able to come back from this, I think that too is probably an angst connected to the world's handling of these issues more than it's connected to an actual experience of the church's handling of these issues. And so the call for grace and, and restoration and redemption and repair, that's right. Um, but you never actually get to practice those things if you don't actually address the sin, yeah. right? And um, the, the great omission uh, in the church in the, in the States is just omitting the responsibility for addressing the sin. So I'm, I'm sitting here just sort of you know, between those things, just sort of thinking about the historical reality, thinking about, you know, the, the, the fears that, that exist, um, things of that sort. Um, even the comments around language, I mean, I'm, I'm like, I'm torn, right? I, I, I agree. I think there are ways in which extra biblical language can be misleading and unhelpful. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I think that extra biblical language 
it's capturing the historical particularity, right? So when I engage some people and they want to argue, well, let's just use biblical language. Let's use partiality. Yeah. It's like, okay, I'm fine to use that language as long as you also say that the particular form of partiality here is expressed along racial lines, right? And so so um, this is not what Ben is arguing uh, by any means, but but they are folks who want to you to sort of inveigh against language in order to sort of um, erase the issue, right? The issue is not just that someone has been partial, is that they have been partial along particular lines, right? So just to switch the category, for example, if someone's being partial toward men over women, we call that sexism, right? Uh, and it we wouldn't gain very much to say, hey, let's excommunicate this person for partiality without saying that the way they were expressing the partiality was against women, right? We, we don't gain very much there in terms of instructing the congregation, healing the wound, um, you know, redressing it, knowing it when it's happening again by this person or by others. So I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the call for biblical language. I'm, I'm skeptical about the way some people will use it to actually erase the issue, right? So there's a generalizing that's going on that itself is self-protective that I think is unhelpful and unspiritual. I, I hear you. I think my concern is pastoral, yeah. right? Sense of yeah. like, if I'm dealing with somebody who's, you know, let's just, let's just take the example, the conservative majority culture, brother or sister and i say hey you committed a microaggression like i'm not going to get a hearing um stereotypically more often than not however if i say you know brother sister you know um when you said this it was unnecessarily harsh and unloving and let me explain let me explain why and i just think that that goes a lot further than slapping not slapping i don't want to be i don't want to dismiss extra biblical language but i'm saying that that language those buzzwords can really close ears um for the work that we want the holy spirit to do in our local bodies i entirely agree entirely agree so, so part of it is um even in a conversation about language there's a conversation about what language right so i yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't find microaggression to be something that communicates um, very clearly, right? I remember having a conversation once, and the person thought that um, I was saying they were just a little bit aggressive. It's kind of like uh, not quite. I see, I see how you got there. <laughs> it's not not quite what that means, you know. Oh, so, I, <laughs> now I'm doing this. So I agree with you. I agree with you, Ben. Um, not not all language is created equal. And, and that all language uh, opens the heart and, and opens opportunity for uh, conversation in the Lord's work. So I agree there, with you. There is a, so just going back to what you said, Davidi, I think it's sort of like the, the Bible never envisioned, for example, the scale and wickedness of like the sort of current situation of abortion, right? Like, like we know it now, we can apply biblical principles. We see, wow, that's terrible didn't envision the scale and wickedness of the Holocaust, right? Didn't envision the scale and wickedness of slavery and everything that followed from it, or, or I should say chattel race-based slavery, right? So we often talk about how 
oh, you know, back in biblical times, they were slaves, but it was a different thing, right? And it was. And we managed to invent, right, in the sort of this last millennium, a far wickeder form of slavery, right? Um, we managed to take sin to levels that, the, it's not that the Bible didn't contemplate, the Bible just didn't speak about them specifically, right? Wickedness amplified by technology, by power, by ability, by aggregation, whatever you want to call it. That history leaves an imprint. And in the same way that we want to speak about abortion in a certain way that is specific to the history and the circumstance, I think the same is true for the way we talk about modern day racism. Um, and I, I think too, that there are just gonna be, so Ben, I agree with you that pragmatically, there are gonna be times when you wanna ease into how you educate someone about what that means. But there are also times when you need a little fire and brimstone around the issue right? Around just how wicked it is and just how much we have collectively engaged in a form of denialism in the church and how that is not okay and that a new centering of what is and isn't okay is needed. So anyway, I just think both are needed in that regard. So there were so many questions we decided to make this a two-parter. We're going to go ahead and break here. Um, and thank you all for your questions. We look forward to continuing to answer them. Please keep them coming. Um, and Thabiti, do you want to go ahead and pray us out? Sure. Lord, we thank you that we live in a world where questions exist. They keep us humble. They keep us searching. And hopefully they prompt us to find your truth in greater measure. And we praise you that we live in a world that's knowable. Uh, you have established it with uh, a kind of regularity and um, the ability to observe so that we can know. And um, we praise you that you reveal yourself, uh, not only in the heavens, but most clearly and specifically in the word. And we pray, O oh Lord, that as we wrestle with questions, we would find ourselves um, grabbing and clutching onto answers from your word and the ability to live more faithfully in our time. Uh, give us grace, O oh Lord, to uh, face the hard questions with, with faith and um, give us grace to walk through them uh, by faith and not by sight, that we might, Lord, again, uh, live in a way that pleases you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series, Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com/ct.